Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome to episode nine of the CCRN review course, where we're taking a walk through the core curriculum for critical care. For those of you that have been with me in previous podcast episodes, thank you so much for coming back for another one. And for those of you that are new, welcome. It's very nice to have you join us. What we're doing is, as I said, walking through the core curriculum for critical care nursing. And I'm encouraging everyone as they are studying for the CCRN exam to pick and choose the podcast episodes that they believe will work best for them. So I'm trying to create this in such a way that you can tailor make your own CCRN review based on what you feel you need in order to prepare. Just a couple of housekeeping items before we get under underway with today's content. Please take a moment and visit my website. It is khoppypresents.com. There you will find information as to upcoming podcast episodes. You'll also have links to the podcasts from the website if that's helpful to you. And also on my website, you will find a link to brain teasers that I have created in order to help you prepare for the CCRN exam in a variety of different ways. The one that is available as of this recording is the crossword puzzle on cardiac anatomy, physiology, and conduction. As soon as I'm done with this podcast episode, I am going to put together another brain teaser that is specifically targeted toward our three hemodynamic podcasts. And this is the third of the three. So in the first one, we discussed uh, hemodynamic terms and values and things like that. Uh, In the second one, we discussed waveforms and troubleshooting and complications of hemodynamic monitoring. And now we're taking all of it and we're putting it together in this podcast episode, which I have entitled Using Hemodynamic Values in Clinical Decision-Making. One last thing before we get underway, I encourage you to subscribe so that you're up to date on podcasts, uh, newly created and launched podcasts. And also, if you are wanting to bring a critical care program such as the CCRN or the PCCN review to your facility or perhaps your AACN group, 
On my website, I do have a list of the courses that I present both virtually as well as in person, as well as the way that you can contact me uh, through my website. So I really look forward to hearing from you. So in this episode, we are going to discuss some clinical conditions in critical care, including uh, shock that can have an impact on our hemodynamic values and how we can put those values and physical assessment findings to work for us in order to help differentiate these clinical conditions as well as differentiating the different types of shock states. So let's go ahead and start out with cardiogenic shock. And now one of the things I want to mention right here is I am not in any way, shape or form taking a deep dive into each shock state at this point. Shock will be covered in much more depth when we get to the multi-system section of our CCRN review. So just to make you aware, there's more shock to come. So back to talking about cardiogenic shock here, we know one of the most common causes for cardiogenic shock is the patient that presents with MI. An MI significant enough to cause at least 40% of uh, left ventricular function impairment. That's the kind of person that comes in in cardiogenic shock or develops cardiogenic shock. So from a hemodynamic standpoint, it really stands to reason that cardiac output and cardiac index are decreased in cardiogenic shock. You know, when you look at cardiac output and cardiac index, both of them are decreased in so many different types of shock states. So it's really keying in on some of the other hemodynamic variables, as well as the clinical presentation that helps you come in for a landing on cardiogenic shock. Of course, along with the history of the patient rolling in the front door to begin with, we take all of it into consideration. So because the ventricles are not ejecting well because of the infarct, ischemia, the injury, um, we have an increase in filling pressures because we don't have forward movement of blood out of the heart. That's going to increase our filling volume in the ventricles, which increases our right and left-sided filling pressures. So we see that the right atrial pressure is increased. We see that the pulmonary artery occlusive pressure is increased. We can see that as the left-sided pressures increase and blood backs up and pressure backs up into the pulmonary vascular bed, we can see the PA pressures go up as well. Now, if you'll remember from cardiac anatomy and physiology, and this was repeated again in our first hemodynamic podcast, that when you look at the relationship between cardiac output and SVR, We know that when the cardiac output goes down for any reason, any reason at all, the SVR will go up. So they are inversely related to one another, and that's an effect of the sympathetic nervous system. So when the sympathetic nervous system kicks in, of course, we have vascular constriction. And what we will see is while we see our systolic pressure fall, we will see our diastolic pressure climb. And that's because our diastolic blood pressure 
is a, a correlation to our vascular resistance. So we say then that the patient has a narrowed pulse pressure. If you looked at and printed out all your calcs, you would find that the left ventricular stroke work index is also decreased. If the right side of the heart is involved, then we could have a decrease in right ventricular stroke work index as well. Both SVO2 and DO2, which is the delivery of oxygen to the tissues, is also decreased. Now, from a, a physical assessment standpoint, you've got somebody that's tachycardic, they're hypotensive, they're tachypnic because of the fluid backing up into their lungs. One of the earliest signs, and this is very commonly a CCRN question, one of the earliest signs of a patient going into pulmonary, ede- pulmonary edema is the formation or the new finding of an S3. An S3 heart sound is overfilling into a non-compliant ventricle. And now I'm talking new onset of an S3. Now, if it's a brand new admit rolling in the door with cardiogenic shock, we're not going to know whether that S3 is a new or a chronic finding, but we always have to assume the worst first. So we're going to say then that that S3 is a new finding, indicative of non-compliance as the left ventricle is not compliant to the flow that's coming from the atria during diastole. And that, you know, from there we have the backup of blood into the lungs. So crackles are present, dyspnea, we may be seeing JVD with right-sided failure. Um, You know, depending upon our time frame and how long this took to develop, we may see things like peripheral edema and hepatomegaly if that right side has failed along with the left. But again, the real acute signs are related to the S3, the crackles, the dyspnea, the tachycardia, the hypotension, and the tachypnea. Sympathetic nervous system is in full swing here. And we have a patient that is extremely anxious and has that feeling of impending doom. So those are the parameters that we see when somebody is in cardiogenic shock. So cardiac output and index decrease, SVR and SVR index increase in compensation, and our filling pressures are up. Our right and left-sided filling pressures are up. So meaning our right atrial pressure, our pulmonary artery diastolic pressure, and our pulmonary artery occlusive pressure or wedge pressure. Now let's compare that with hypovolemic shock. Hypovolemic shock. Here we have a patient that has a decreased cardiac output and index. Hmm, isn't that what we just said for cardiogenic shock? I think so. So we can't use the decrease in cardiac output and index to be one of our definitive clues. We have to move on then to things like filling pressures and look at right and left filling pressures. So what we see in hypovolemic shock is both the right atrial pressure, right-sided filling, and wedge pressure or PAD, left-sided filling, both of those pressures are decreased low filling. Now notice 
For the same reason as in cardiogenic shock, the SVR and the SVRI are both increased. That is the sympathetic nervous system kicking in and compensating for that drop in cardiac output. Remember, we said that they are inversely related. If we have a SCVO2 determination, so we have a, an oximetric central line, or we have an oximetric swan in place, we will see that the SVO2 is decreased simply because the tissues are not getting adequately perfused because there's not enough volume. So I'm also going to take into account the patient's presenting story, right? That makes good sense. As well as my clinical assessment findings. What did I find? Because again, I'm going to have a patient that is tachypnic, hypotensive, tachycardic, and oliguric. Hmm. Isn't that the same thing that we found with cardiogenic shock? Now though, I'm going to have a patient that looks dry. Maybe I have a patient that has dry mucous membranes, sunken soft eyeballs. Maybe I have somebody that doesn't pass the pinch test and uh, the patient has tenting of the skin. So this is the type of patient that I'm going to give volume to. I'm going to determine what kind of volume has been lost to begin with and then give the patient volume. So if it's a patient that's been bleeding, we need blood as well as crystalloid. If it's somebody that's dehydrated, maybe the patient's been in a nursing home and has been febrile, um, maybe we need some crystalloid going in. Either way, we have to replete the patient's volume. So what differentiates cardiogenic shock and hypovolemic shock in terms of hemodynamic values are the, the filling pressures, guys. The filling pressures, absolutely, along with our clinical assessment findings. And that finding of somebody that is clearly volume overloaded in cardiogenic shock and somebody who is clearly volume depleted in hypovolemic shock. So let's move on to septic shock. And septic shock is going to give us a different clinical profile based on when the patient presents with the septic shock. For example, are we early in septic shock or are we late? So let's take a look at our hemodynamic presentation. So in early septic shock, because of endotoxin release, we see massive vasodilatation. That's why it is, guys, you'll come to find when we get to that section of the review, septic shock falls under that major category of distributive shock distributive, which we, which means that we have a maldistribution of blood flow related to vessels that are profoundly dilated. And that's in response typically to endotoxin. So as the vessels dilate out, of course, the patient's blood pressure tanks. So what we see when the vessels dilate out, we see the SVR and SVRI both decrease. And what we see is a cardiac output and cardiac index increase, again, being inversely related. So it looks like this patient has this big, major cardiac output. And in fact, some people say, you know, this is the hyperdynamic phase of sepsis. But actually, the heart really isn't hyperdynamic at all. 
um, if you looked at the right ventricular and left ventricular stroke work indices, you would see that the cardiac muscle is really not performing all that well at all. However, because the heart is squeezing out against such low resistance, it makes it look as though the cardiac output and index are really high. So because of that maldistribution of blood flow in those vessels uh, everywhere in the body, our filling pressures are going to drop. So our right and left-sided filling pressures will be decreased, including our right atrial pressure, our pulmonary artery diastolic pressure, uh, along with PA systolic, and then also our wedge pressure, our left-sided filling will also be decreased. We will see that the SVO2 or SCVO2 is also decreased uh, in response to a, a few different things. First of all, if we have maldistribution of blood flow, the tissues aren't getting adequately fed. Also, there's a big problem with tissue oxygen extraction in the presence of sepsis. So not only are the tissues not getting adequate flow, but they're not able to extract the oxygen from the flow that they're getting normally. So we see then that our patient is tachypneic and hypotensive and tachycardic and hyperthermic. Uh, neurologically, confusion is a big one, especially in the elderly. Initially, warm, moist, flushed skin. So we take all of these assessment and hemodynamic findings and we merge that together with the, case, with the patient's clinical presentation, and we say, well, you know, this patient is in the, you know, earlier phases of septic shock. Now, what happens in the, the late phases? As we say somebody is in late, late sepsis, it now portrays a picture that's much more like standard hypovolemic shock, where now the cardiac output and index drop, SVR goes up, and now they have kind of a classic profile that is consistent with hypovolemic shock. So how is it, guys, we would know septic shock from hypovolemic shock right from the get-go? Well, if it was early septic shock, we would know it because the SVR drops, whereas in true hypovolemic shock, the SVR goes up we would always use our clinical judgment in taking a look at the presenting story, the history, the physical, and, you know, our assessment findings in order to make our determination. So let's move onward to some other clinical states that can have an impact on our hemodynamic findings. Let's talk about pulmonary hypertension. So now I'm thinking mostly about the COPD. -er. So when I say that, I'm thinking about the person who is chronically hypoxic and chronically hypercapnic. Sometimes we say that these people are members of the 50-50 club. So they have a 50 PO2 and a 50 PCO2. Now for these people, one of the things that we see is we see that when you look at their pulmonary artery pressures, in comparison to their wedge pressure, 
we can see a huge disparity, a huge difference between the pulmonary artery diastolic as well as, uh, or in comparison to the wedge pressure. And let's just talk about that. In response to chronic hypoxia and hypercapnia, the pulmonary vascular bed responds to that by vasoconstricting. When the pulmonary vascular bed vasoconstricts, we know the right ventricle has a harder time ejecting down into the pulmonary vascular bed. So certainly right-sided heart failure is a real problem for this patient population. And that would include assessment findings like uh, tachycardia, jugular venous distension, and, and edema. We were in nursing school, we were always taught about the blue bloater. So if we're dealing with right ventricular failure, certainly our right-sided filling pressure, our right atrial pressure will be increased. Another thing that's noteworthy is the reflection of the pulmonary vascular resistance on our PVR. We see the pulmonary vascular resistance number go up above 250 dynes. Another thing that we see is because of that vasoconstriction, the PAD, pulmonary artery diastolic, is much greater than the wedge pressure. And so I know earlier when we were first talking about PAD and using the PAD to approximate what the wedge would be if you're working in a facility um, where you don't routinely, unless you're... um, you have a doctor's order, you don't uh, routinely wedge the catheter tip. Well, this is a patient population that's going to be a little bit trickier because we said that normally the PA diastolic should be within about five of the wedge and the wedge being lower, of course, than the PA diastolic. Typically, you know, three to five millimeters lower than the PA diastolic. When you have a patient that you're not wedging the catheter tip, you have the interpretation of right-sided influences. And so what you'll see then is that you'll see that if you're not um, wedging the catheter tip, you'll get a pressure of 70 over 50. But if a physician um, wedged the catheter tip, or if, you know, by order you were able to do that, you would very commonly find that the wedge pressure can be normal or even low. Because remember, when we inflate the catheter tip, we shut off right-sided influences. And so what we're seeing is the transmission of a back pressure from the left ventricle all the way back to the catheter tip. And so we're kind of shutting off that right-sided influence and we can indirectly look over to that left side. So we can see somebody with really high PA pressures, but left-sided filling, if we look at the wedge, is really much lower and sometimes can even be low. So our ability to use the PAD in situations like this in order to determine left-sided filling is really pretty limited. And it really calls on us to perhaps look at other types of monitoring devices, such as the flow track device, for example, that is able to help us look at stroke volume, stroke volume index, cardiac index, and um, if needed, uh, 
give the patient some fluid to see if the patient is fluid responsive in the presence of pulmonary hypertension. So again, um, pulmonary hypertension is one of the things that really can throw off that correlation between the PAD and the wedge pressure. So the next one is cardiogenic versus non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Let's talk about those two uh, clinical conditions and let's talk about some differentiating factors. So when we talk about cardiogenic pulmonary edema, just as its name implies, it's pulmonary edema from a cardiac cause. And so, of course, we're thinking along the lines of left-sided heart failure. So we're going to see some things that we very commonly saw before in cardiogenic shock, and that is that our cardiac output and index are decreased and our SVR and SVRI are increased. Along with that, both right-sided and left-sided filling pressures are increased. Our SAT and our SVO2 are decreased because of poor pump performance and oxygenation issues. Next, let's compare non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema with what we just discussed, which of course is the cardiogenic pulmonary edema related to left-sided heart failure. Now, first off, what is the most common cause of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema? Well, certainly one of the things that comes to mind is ARDS, Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. So we have pulmonary edema of a non-cardiac origin. So instead of fluid leaking out of pulmonary capillaries and into the uh, lung tissue due to hydrostatic or pushing pressure, in ARDS, we have leaky pulmonary capillaries that become freely permeable related to very commonly an endotoxin or a septic process, for example. So now you have capillaries that have lost their integrity in ARDS, and we have leakage of what's ever in the vascular bed, the pulmonary capillary vascular bed, so fluid and formed elements. Whereas in cardiogenic pulmonary edema, what we have is a fluid movement due to hydrostatic or pushing pressure as fluid builds up in the pulmonary capillary bed and just leaks out based on a pushing or hydrostatic pressure. So in one instance, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, the capillaries retain their integrity. Whereas in ARDS, the capillaries lose their integrity, become freely permeable. So not only do we have a fluid leak, but we're also losing uh, blood elements, formed elements into the pulmonary tissue. So what we'll see here in terms of our hemodynamic numbers is that our pulmonary pressures will elevate, okay, very much like we saw with cardiogenic pulmonary edema. However, our wedge pressure can stay as normal as can be in non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema because LV function is still retained. So we see elevated PA pressures, normal wedge pressure, and now we see pulmonary vascular resistance increase, and that's simply related to the hypoxia and hypoxemia. 
So these patients develop an ARDS picture. And again, the non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema is most often caused by ARDS. And what we see as a hallmark there is refractory hypoxemia. And we'll be getting into that in much more depth when we start talking about the respiratory system. So now we have a patient that is dysthmic, develops crackles, and their lungs become stiffer and stiffer as a result of this exudative fluid movement into pulmonary tissue. So let's talk next about cardiac tamponade. And so when we talk about cardiac tamponade, of course, we're talking about a form of obstructive shock where the heart is unable to fill normally. We see a drop in cardiac output and index. And as fluid accumulates in the pericardial sac, we can see our filling pressures increase. In fact, one of the signs we look for is that the CVP climbs to meet the wedge pressure or climbs up to meet the the PAD because you have equalization of chamber pressures. So the right atrial pressure, the PAD, and the wedge pressure will all be within about five millimeters of mercury of one another. One of the hemodynamic waveforms that we will see with our pulmonary artery catheter is elevated A and V waves on the wedge pressure uh, tracing, and that's known as the M sign. Now keep in mind, the A wave is um, produced by atrial contraction. V wave is produced by atrial filling. And so you can understand then that if a person has tamponade and their cardiac chambers are being compressed on all sides by fluid or pus or blood accumulation in the pericardial sac, not only will the atria have difficulty emptying, but they also will have difficulty filling. And that will produce for us an M sign on the wedge pressure waveform. We will also see pulsus paradoxus. Pulsus paradoxus is where we see a drop in blood pressure of at least 10 millimeters of mercury during inspiration. And again, that is reflective of this filling defect. We see also a decrease in SVO2 if we have an oximetric pulmonary artery catheter in place. Patient feels fullness in the chest, tachycardia, hypotension, tachypnea, muffled heart tones may be present, jugular venous distension, and on the ECG, you may see electrical alternans where the QRS complex uh, varies in amplitude from beat to beat, electrical alternans. So um, that is the profile. It is a form of obstructive shock. Some people put it under the category of cardiogenic shock related to a filling deficit. But remember, for cardiac tamponade, what differentiates it from the cardiogenic shock that we talked about before is the equalization of chamber pressures, that's a biggie, and the presence of elevated A and V waves producing an M sign on the wedge waveform. 
and also pulses paradoxus. So a drop in systolic blood pressure greater than 10 10 millimeters of mercury during inspiration. The next clinical condition that we're going to take a look at in terms of how it impacts our hemodynamics is papillary muscle rupture, which includes, of course, chordae, a tendinate tear, or a rupture of the papillary muscle uh, from the endocardium. Now you have two sets of papillary muscles. You have an anterior set and a posterior set. They are indeed muscles. So that means that if you have had muscle, muscle injury and resulting necrosis due to an MI, certainly the papillary muscles can become involved with that and that could lead us to papillary muscle rupture. What happens with these patients, of course, seeing as the papillary muscle and the chordae tendinae are responsible for anchoring the mitral valve, if that anchor is no longer there, the patient is going to go into florid pulmonary edema because of mitral regurge. So we'll see a drop in cardiac output and index. Certainly, filling pressures will increase because, you know, blood's going to take the pathway of least resistance. So instead of blood coming out of the aorta and into the systemic vasculature, it's going to actually flow back across that that mitral valve insufficiency, and it's going to head right back to the lungs. Our filling pressures are going to, going to go up. We're going to develop a big murmur, and we're going to see an elevated V wave on the pulmonary artery occlusive pressure waveform or wedge waveform. With that low cardiac output and index, we're also going to see our SVO2 decrease, our saturation decrease. Certainly the delivery of oxygen to the tissues is decreased as well. So what we see then is tachycardia, hypotension, tachypnea, dyspnea, crackles. Like I said, this patient goes into florid pulmonary edema. And we see the development of a new holosystolic murmur at the apex. So be aware of this when you take the CCRN and they start walking you through this story problem where you have a post-MI patient that develops new onset of a holosystolic murmur associated with a, a big V wave. You have to be thinking about papillary muscle dysfunction, papillary muscle rupture, or tearing of the chordae tendine off the papillary. No matter how you look at it, any one of those uh, will result in a mitral valve now that is insufficient and blood flow regurges from the left ventricle back into the atrium and then back to the lungs. So what differentiates papillary muscle rupture, let's say, from cardiogenic shock, just standard cardiogenic shock? Well, you know, that big, tall V-wave we see with... um the patient with papillary muscle rupture, certainly we're going to pick up on uh, papillary muscle rupture using an echo as well. So looking for those V waves and that new onset of a holosystolic murmur is really very crucial. 
So how do we differentiate cardiac tamponade from papillary muscle rupture? Well, remember tamponade, we had the elevated A and V waves. We also had equalization of chamber pressures, whereas now we have the big V wave and new onset of a holosystolic murmur. Now let's go back to that patient that's had an MI, and let's say that MI has involved the septum, and let's say that this patient goes on to develop ventricular septal rupture. Now you're going to have a person that is tachycardic and hypotensive and tachypnic, develops new onset of a holosystolic murmur at the lower left sternal border. Now, with this type of patient, what we see is when we draw blood from the right atrium, that'd be our proximal port, correct? And compare it to the blood drawn from the distal port, which is the PA port, When we draw gases off both of those ports and we go ahead and compare them, we see what's called a step up in oxygenation between the right atrium and the right ventricle. And we know that the oxygenation should be about the same in the right atrium as it is in the right ventricle because the blood hasn't even been to the lungs yet to receive oxygen. So watch for the story problem that has a step up in oxygenation between the right atrium and the right ventricle in the setting of a new onset of a holosystolic murmur heard along the left left lower sternal border. So guys, this ends our discussion on application of hemodynamic Uh, values and clinical presentation and the impact on our clinical decision making. So I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please come and join me for future podcasts. Um, Episode number 10 is going to be titratable drugs in the ICU uh, with a specific emphasis, of course, on the cardiovascular drugs, because that currently is the area that we're studying. Please take a moment and check out my website at khoppypresents.com and subscribe so you're aware of podcasts coming in the future. Thank you once again for being here and I hope you have a blessed day. Bye-bye now.